Hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater, your podcast for discussions of Hollywood's near misses, the weird stuff, the outliers, the strange films that worm their way into theaters and then get promptly kicked right back out again. And this week's film is 1999's The Epic Year that was 1999, the odd duck superhero film that capped off the 90s superhero films, namely Mystery Men. Starring literally everyone who was popular or famous in the 90s. And uh, a film that I'm sure we'll talk about, but was way ahead of its time because it was already sick of superhero movies and wanted to make fun of them. Uh, And by golly, if it came out now, the material that they would have. But uh, as always, I'm your amiable co-host, Tim. Joining me is... Catherine! My sister. And we are going to break down this infinitely weird little movie uh so mystery men as i said came out in 1999 it attempted uh very hard to capitalize on the burgeoning success of superhero films in hollywood um but this definitely feels like a pre-spider-man superhero film Right. This movie owes way more to Tim Burton's Batman or really even Tim Burton's Batman Returns than it owes to anything that we've seen in the 2000s. I feel like this um, was Joel Schumacher, the movie. Yes. Somebody went to the Joel Schumacher school of superhero mm-hmm. films and and attempted to do something somehow weirder than what those movies already were. The Joel Schumacher filmmaking school is just a clown college, so we're clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just a college where people are studying to jump out of the way of bulls at a, a rodeo. Right? And I that's, loved that's the really man. I, I think he was I think he was fabulously terrible, but but he did not make good movies. Well, as as always seems to happen, we have made it far enough into the future that people are now writing, you know, their their pieces on Medium about how Batman and Robin is actually good. No, it's not. And how (laughs) we need to go back and we need to remember. I mean, I did see one person attempting to justify that the film is culturally relevant again because Mr. Freeze was trying to fight against global warming. And Poison Ivy was fighting against deforestation. Mm. And okay. because the and because the film was on the precipice, was was ahead of the game in terms of the activism of the villain characters, we really need to give it some credo, uh, some credence. I think I'm going to be sick. Uh, <laughs> just pardon me while I throw up into this trash can conveniently located beside my desk. It's uh, It's been interesting to see people try to reclaim that film. A lot of it comes down to if you saw Batman and Robin when you were five. Yeah, you probably thought it was awesome. Right. Because it was had Batman. It had a lot of Because you were a little kid and you were dumb. <laughs> That's right. It's the same reason why we thought Phantom Menace was OK in uh, 1999 and then promptly realized later that was stupid and wrong we were. Um, so, yeah, I, this is this is an artifact that I think. Unlike Batman and Robin, which whatever, this film actually has gained more relevance because it was, as I said, trying even in 1999, when superhero movies were just getting off the ground, was trying to to poke fun, right? It was trying to look at superheroes and say, look at how ridiculous this idea is. And, and, and its source material is 
definitely yes. known for that too. That's right. So this uh, Mystery Men, just for those of you who don't know, uh, is a, a superhero film that is about superheroes that aren't very super heroic and they were side characters or additional characters i suppose you could say in the flaming carrot uh superhero comics series that was a, a very early indie darling um you know we had you know indie comics at one time were exactly that right it's it's funny to think about indie comics now coming out of a publisher like image which is a multi you know, billion dollar operation at this point, I suppose. And, you know, that's not really indie. It's just another publisher. Whereas, you know, Flaming Carrot, until it, you know, eventually got picked up by Dark Horse and, and obviously Dark Horse, you know, promoted it. And it was one of its early successes with uh, Hellboy and things like that. But I mean, we're talking about the guys like, Con you know, guys uh, who did Concrete and uh, Cerberus. Lethargic right? Lad. <laughs> yeah, uh, Scud the Disposable Assassin. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I mean, like they were literally just comic books made by people who wanted to make comic books, and then they were able to do small print runs. And, and, and so Flaming them, Care was one of those. A lot of them kind of felt like they were they were maybe in between comic strips and comic books, because a lot of them sort of had that serialized comic strip feel to them. Flaming mm -hmm. Carrot was a little higher quality in that regard. And I think that's why it got so popular and led to a movie like this. And it too, like most of the independent comics of the 1980s was constantly pushing back against what was successful, which, you know, I mean, it just brief overview of comics in the 1980s. It was like it was from, for many cultural points of reference, especially in the United States. It was a time of questioning authority. Right. The 1980s was all about pushing back against corporations, governments. You know, it was the, the counterculture movement kicked off in the late 1970s writ large. And that happened to comics, too. Of course, the, the landmark one, the one everybody references, of course, is Watchmen, where Alan Moore, you know, deconstructed the entire concept of superheroes and how somebody would be that and do that in the world. And then the consequences of that. And so that was an, an, an atom bomb to the superhero comic genre. And many people took some of those ideas or ideas that they were inspired to, to run with, you know, to the independent comic scene and brought those to life. And Flaming Carrot was one of those. Although it was much sillier, it was much more absurd, right? It was, it was really playing upon the idea that being a superhero is, is ridiculous from top to bottom. Right? That's kind of why weird. I always think of Lethargic Lad, because it was doing the same thing. It was just making fun of mm -hmm. the entire idea of superheroes existing at all. And this movie is absolutely doing the same thing, but the line that it rides and it very rarely successfully executes on is that it also loves superheroes and the mm -hmm. concepts of superheroes. It wants to poke fun at them, um, and it has certain characters that it certainly does poke fun at, but yet at the same time, there's an affection that the film obviously has for these underdog losers who want to be superheroes. And and of course, the film kind of lets that, that story play out. Um, so... Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the failure. This was a a colossal box office bomb. Like it, uh, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, um, its budget was was quite high for 1999. It was about 70 million dollars, um, which I you do not see on screen. Nothing no. about this movie looks like it cost 70 million dollars at all. But. It only made back about $33 million at the box office. So huge failure financially. Nobody went to see this. We did. Um, mm -hmm. I went to see it. Uh, and, and, and we saw it because 
mostly because the cast in this movie is ridiculous. We are um, we were big fans of Ben Stiller. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Ben Stiller show, his short-lived sketch comedy series on Fox, was literally one of my favorite shows of the late 90s. Um, the The cast that he assembled for that sketch show was great. Uh, I still, to this day, on occasion, will load up the YouTube link to the TJO Pooter Toots. Toots. Pooter balls are people. Um, Pooter balls are people. And <laughs> it's... It's just one of the greatest things ever. And and I really enjoyed it. It was a very hit or miss sketch show in an era of hit or miss sketch shows. Um, but, you know, it, it, it takes us back to a time when Ben Stiller was not yet really a household name, but was very successful yeah. in his own right. Um, you know, his career was was on the uptake. You know, this is pre, I guess, dodgeball, which is where his <laughs> complete off the wall characterizations came to the fore. But. <clears throat> but this really is, is kind of where things started. And honestly, this movie is full of people who were either right on the cusp of success or these were their first sort of steps towards, you know, really widespread uh, fame. And it's it's kind of crazy. Again, this cast is nuts. The the film itself is is fairly straightforward. Um, it's set in Champion City. Uh, which is supposed to be just a generic superhero city stand-in. Uh, we do get a couple of... It's There's a lot of model work in this, which is where I think the Schumacher-Burton connections come to. This is kind of still pre-CG. You know, they're not building city. And Although there goodness, is some. I think this would have been really this, bad but. if they had done CG. I'm, I'm glad that they didn't. I think the movie would be infinitely more harmed than it already is. <laughs> Yeah, no, this era of of CG with this kind of budget and this kind of, I'm just going to say this execution would have been terrible. Uh, Like I said, there already is some, uh, although it is is pretty minimal, but it's, there's a lot of, you know, just just very good model work on display to establish Champion City. It's always dark. Um, It's it's always dour. It's rainy. It's, you know, it's it's, it's like Gotham. You know, I had a lot. I had it. I had the most positive response. To the design of Champion City, I actually wanted to talk about that. Okay. Um, yeah. I I mean I, I I work a lot now in in my professional life with uh, with people who make indie video games and uh, specifically one called Ion Fury, and so much of Ion Fury, I could see those design elements that that like are in a video game level used in Mystery Men. So, like, the whole thing sort of was giving me flashbacks of, like, 90s retro shooters. Um, yeah. There's a lot of neon. There's yeah. A lot of, uh, the neon signs, so, like, yeah. the big, you know, boxy skyscrapers and, and just, it's like trying to look Blade Runner-y, but it's got this weird kind of AOL-tinged plastic wrapping on it that I think is just so... The 90s. <laughs> That's yes. what the 90s were. It was taking something else from another era and then messing it up somehow and making it just a little bit kooky. So I thought the colors of Champion City were incredible, just beautiful colors. Half the time what was going on in the scene between the actors was not as interesting as the background. <laughs> Where yeah. things were happening in Champion no, City, I was really impressed. I even took screenshots of some of the things that that stuck out that um, I wanted to 
like post on Twitter, like this is cool. Make a video game level that looks like this. <laughs> <laughs> this this game plants its or not this game, but this movie plants its flag. Um, uh, we'll go ahead and mention. Uh, well, on on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a sixty one percent critic reaction and fifty seven percent audience. So really, kind of dead on with each other um, uh, in terms of response. So it's it's not terrible. This is still a a certified fresh film, um, but it it didn't resonate with people. And I think part of that is because this film is just exceedingly, I, I, I don't want to meet, may seem, I think this is derogatory, but it's exceedingly strange on purpose. And the, the director of this, this is his only feature film credits. Uh, it was directed by Kinka Usher. Commercial uh, director. Who was primarily a commercial director in the nineties. And um, it shows. And that this this feels very much like 90s advertising, bright colors, um, heavy. It, I don't know. I, I was when I watched it again, I was like, all the fabrics are really heavy. You know, you don't mm-hmm. like just the co- everything looks thick, right? All the costumes, all of the, the makeup, everything is just everyone's wearing on. so much. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just excessive. And I guess that's kind of, you know, 90s superhero movies, just excess from top to bottom. But this just has a very, very interesting look and design and feel. And it, it, if anything, I think that should make it more endearing, but I'm not sure it does. Um, and as, as this is one of those movies that as much of it that works there is almost an equal measure of things that absolutely do not. It's it's almost perfectly balanced in its in that way. In that, like, oh, this is great, and this is so good, and then it's like, oh, the movie. Oh, the movie oh, is just you know? really bad about about killing about boner killing. Like it it boner kills its audience all the time. Where it's like you'll be getting into the movie, and the action's really good, and it's like, oh, this is cool. Finally, the movie's doing something. It, we're seeing some shit now and then it'll just it'll it'll do something and it'll be different depending on the scene like sometimes it'll just be a joke or or an edit that that's just too long <laughs> like a take yeah. that one's on too long <laughs> yeah like a take too long and then of course the i mean most superhero movies have problems in the second act but this one definitely does where yeah. characters attempt to do something and then are foiled and then somehow escape and then just go do something else for 20 minutes and then try again. Yeah. And it, it's very strange. Um, it, it, it feel it maybe smacks a little bit of just, we filmed other stuff and then decided not to use it for various reasons. You know, I imagine so, there was a lot of trimming going on. So but. much of this movie feels like this is the only take we had and we <laughs> paid for the footage. So we're going to use it. It's going in the movie. <laughs> like, it was just, especially with some of the humor beats where right. it would feel like the joke finished and it was funny and I would have laughed and I'm like, ah, good one. And then they would make another joke or it would keep going. Yeah. And it's like, and s- you could have cut it is there. The, <laughs> Stiller is the worst one there, which it seems like they want to do that with this character. So I, I guess let's, let's lay out the, the basic premise here Mm. so we got champion city which again we said is is nice it's a good well-designed 90s superhero city 
um, who their their patron superhero, like the guy that everybody loves, is Captain Amazing, right? Isn't that it? Captain Amazing? Uh, Captain Amazing, Captain Awesome, Captain something. It's something um, amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's it's, it's Greg Kinnear, right? Yeah. So <laughs> it's it, Captain again, Greg Kinnear, is what it it's, is. <laughs> it's exactly who you, who you would expect Greg Kinnear to play in the '90s, and he's wonderful. And uh. In this world, superheroes get uh, sponsorship deals. So his like suit is like a Pepsi. He logo looks like a NASCAR and, driver. <laughs> and Pennzoil. Yeah, I mean it's it is really funny. Like it, it is the visual of of his suit, his costume, um, is fantastic. Because honestly, if something like a superhero existed in our world, that is precisely what would happen immediately. Yeah. And and, and, and really, so, we redid that trope when we did Iron Man. Because Absolutely. Iron Man didn't have yeah. the sponsorships, but he was that character through and yes. through. Um, and it, it was kind of cool to see a, a different take on that. And I love, you know, Greg Kinnear kind of also captures the Robert Downey Jr. smug and smarmy thing with this, mm-hmm. this role. And I really want, I wanted to see more, really a lot more of Captain Amazing. Yeah, if anything, that's one of the movie's weaknesses is that his character is not in it for very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he's in it for a long time, but he he doesn't appear for various reasons that we'll we'll get to in a sec. <laughs> but so, in a in a world where you have this incredible Superman style superhero, if you want to be a superhero and you don't have those incredible powers, what does that look like for you? And and that's what the Mystery Men are. Uh, they're not named at the beginning. They don't have a group name. They, there are several joke sequences where they try to work it out. But it's a bunch of just sort of regular Joe superheroes. And so our, our core three are played by Ben Stiller, Hank Azaria, and uh, a very young William H. Macy. Who looks uh, the same. Yeah, he hasn't, he, he hasn't really game. changed. Uh, <laughs> he hasn't really changed at all. But... So so they are this core trio and the film actually opens at I guess it's a retirement home. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's a retirement home. I mean, good Uh, luck trying to figure that out, though. Yeah, because it's it's really just crazy. It's a bunch of people in sparkly clothing dancing around. There are some 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 older folks who are sitting at tables, some of them eating, some of them doing other stuff. It's it it doesn't make a ton of sense. It really felt like like scenes from Batman Forever. Yes. Not Batman and Robin necessarily. Batman no, forever. Batman forever. Yeah. Like those goofy scenes when, uh, you know, like two faces dudes were breaking into pl- breaking into parties and making people hand over their watches. Yeah. Like, that's really what this is. Except in, in this one, it's like a dude handing over his dentures. <laughs> like, that's that's it his, makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so that gets interrupted and our our three superheroes show up to try and stop it. And and just get soundly beaten up, just absolutely their asses kicked. And it doesn't seem like the other guys are that good either. They're just terrible. Uh, so their their three superhero personas are. Uh, ben Stiller is, oh gosh, what's his name? Mr. Furious. Mr. Furious, because his power is that he gets angry. And the best part is he gets angry, but he's completely ineffectual. He doesn't he actually is, do anything or accomplish anything like the Hulk, but yeah. he talks endlessly like he will. That's uh, like right. The, I'm going to go Pompeii on your butt. <laughs> yeah. And that's really effective. All of that humor is yeah, really it's funny. Great. It's really good. Every time that he tries to like go up to that line, 
and make it seem like he's a badass and then just gets immediately pushed back is is awesome. I mean, that's the bulk of his character in the film is that happening. Um, we have William H. Macy playing the shoveler, who is exactly what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. He hits people with a shovel. He wears a mining hat. Yeah, he's like a quarry. It's, he like worked in a, a exactly. mine or a quarry, and that's that's where he got his his hero costume. Exactly. And then, of course, uh, Hank Azaria is the Blue Raja, <sighs> and he spends the entirety of the film attempting to explain why he is the Blue Raja and why he has a very very hackneyed. And uh, I, sort of I, British accent. I kind of love that because it's not bad. he he reminds me of some of the DC villains and and even some of the heroes whose names and looks and everything never seem to match up with any of the things that they did as a character. Um you know, they were clearly created by some some dude in like 1936 who mm-hmm. is not alive anymore and none of the things that people thought or felt are are true anymore but that character is still like a part of this however i don't think hank azaria's performance and i don't think the way that the character is presented gets that across yeah it's it's a bit weak uh they do get some comedic milestone mileage out of it towards the end as he we see him at home with his mom yeah. and and we see that you know he's just a guy and he doesn't so have an accent yeah they they try to to sort of you know take it that direction that the raja is this completely created character that this guy's come up with to try and give his life some kind of meaning yeah um and it, it ends up being a bit sweet he gets a nice you know moment with his mom towards the end of the film as they're going out to their you know sort of uh, the final confrontation but this scene immediately established, if, if you cannot make it through this first scene, you are not going to make it through this movie because yeah, give up now. <laughs> this, yeah. Don't bother. Don't, don't try. It's, it's not going to work out for you, but it's so expressive. It's so weird. The camera angles, the shots, there's lots of, lots of Dutch angles, lots of just quick pans and whips Wide angle as, as they're stealing stuff. And and that is the thing that you're going to notice almost immediately. This film does more direct to camera close-ups than mm. maybe any other movie I've ever seen. There are dozens of instances where characters, even if, you know, it, it, like what you would normally do in like a two shot, right? Or an over the shoulder where two characters are talking to each other. He just straight up puts like a fisheye lens on the camera and has mm-hmm. them talk to it. And then have the other person talk to the reverse exact same shot and then just intercuts them. It's very strange. It was, it was like this weird evil dead kind of feel. <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit Sam Raimi, but not. But, you know, it's, you do that kind of shot to throw to throw an audience off because it's not typical film language. Yeah. Right. That's not the way you would generally shoot things like that. Um, but this one does. I, I think it has something to do with him being a commercial director because com- in commercials, I, you talk to camera constantly. Right. And, and it's totally normal. And I noticed that the balance of shots is always wide establishing or close up. There were just mm-hmm. there was a complete lack of, of medium shots that help connect the establishing shot to the close up. So a lot of the scenes ended up being disorienting, like the beginning in the, yeah. the old folks home. It ended up being disorienting because I just 
there was way too much of the camera being up in people's faces. Um, and in a 30 second ad spot, I think it works. But in a two hour movie, wow. it's it's rough. It's it's discombobulating, right? It just it makes everything feel off because you don't you never really get that sense of place or grounding. Um, you know, it, it's not that there aren't some cool shots. I I've, quite frankly, like when Captain Amazing arrives and he leaps through the window, that's a great shot. It's, oh, it's yeah. really cool. It's It's kind of like. You know, it's a worm's eye view looking up as he blows through the window, but it, it very much is evocative of, you know, something like Batman coming through the skylight and in the original Batman, that kind of thing. It's it's a good shot. But the vast majority of of the action is really, really hard to read. Um, it's not that you need to read it. There's nothing happening. I mean, it's literally just people being grabbed or tossed or pushed. You know, there's just, just not really filming. any specific action choreography by modern superhero action standards this film is a colossal failure um at pretty much every level but but it's not really trying to be that either you know that it doesn't want it wants to get more humor out of its action than it wants to get you know true traditional action um i i do want to say that one thing that makes this movie kind of fun is that a lot of the humor or, or a lot of the jokes are visual. This is a, a mm-hmm. an incredibly funny movie from a visual standpoint. The world that it tries to build, for example, at this retirement party that they're holding for these these elderly people at this retirement home, uh, a guy gets thrown into the bar, right? Like somebody tosses him over the the thing into the bar, mm-hmm. but it's not a bar. It's just prescription medication. I know that was it's great. Just <laughs> dozens and dozens of bottles of prescription medication. That's There's a like, very Joel Schumacher touch. Yeah. It's in, just in that man's goofy. defense. He was very good at fleshing out those sort of visual elements to not just a joke, but a world, you know, and, and for better or for worse, it didn't always have the effect that we wanted because the way he fleshed out the world of Batman was kind of awful. However, yeah. that approach in this, it it works like that. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. You know, I mean, you got to kind of be hanging with what the movie's trying to do to to see it as funny. But I, I think there is a lot of that in here. Um, the, you know, just like Captain Amazing's costume is also visually and he's got a huge Rayovac logo like <laughs> right above his his symbol or whatever. I think this film is also unsuccessfully trying to do the sort of timeless thing that to an extent Batman tried to do, but really more like um, Dick Tracy a little bit too. I mean, like although Dick Tracy of course is embedded very heavily in thirties and forties, you know, sort of worldview, but this movie, maybe the mask a little bit is, is getting influenced here, but this movie's trying to do the thing where the world is the the world is blended in, in terms of, of the the time. So we've got things that are very 70s, things that are very 30s, things that are very 50s. Right? It's like all of the, the production design is just mashed together. I mean, it's quite literally mashed together i guess you know specifically it would be a pastiche right this is a pastiche of the large american city mm-hmm. you know so you've got you know some women wearing like 1940s uh, winter hats you've got like police cars that are 
like 1970s challengers but then you've also got like a, a a early 1980s you know corvette like you've just got this this world is very very mixed up and mm-hmm. so i get why because again you want that timeless feel of a comic book that it could it could happen at any point in human history but in this movie, it's just thrown out there and it's never really addressed nor really discussed and feels far too scattershot to actually feel purposeful. Right. It, it, it just to me, it just feels like somebody didn't really know exactly what they wanted. So they just got it all. Right? Like, what kind of cars do we want to have in this movie? All of them. And, you know, you know, again, that feels like something a commercial director would be down to do because yeah maybe. i mean i'm thinking about the headspace you'd have to be in to to pack all of your meaning and your intent into 30 second ad spots and yeah you would have to get really good at putting that texture into the background into the things that aren't even being felt or or perceived by your audience um in a conscious way mm-hmm. and this feels like that the background's at least in the opening, things obviously narrow down as the focus comes into to play. But like in this opening sequence where Captain Amazing's exiting, like the background action is crazy. There's like mm-hmm. 200 people there and they're all dressed in these you know crazy outfits. They're bright colors, you know, bright greens, bright reds. It's it's a film that in it feels like they worked so hard to establish some kind of visual identity that they went too far and then they lost all their visual identity. Like they just didn't have it and there wasn't enough to kind of link things together. I mean, like, you know, there are scenes later where it's like doing, as you said, the Blade Runner thing of like, you know, just Chinese writing hanging in the sky or Japanese writing hanging in the sky. And it's like, wait, what is this a dystopia? Is that what this is? Or, or is this like some rose gold 1950s kind of like metropolis feel like what what world is this and it doesn't really feel like it knows or, or has a clear understanding of what it wants to be so it's just trying to do it all and hope that it's enough and it doesn't it doesn't really come to it didn't gel for me uh, I think there are elements of it as you said like this the design of the city itself is really cool yeah. But I don't, it's not cohesive. It's just kind of all yeah. over the place. Well, and it's, it's just in service of nothing. <laughs> like, what is this doing for the film? It's neat. Right. But I don't understand the purpose in this film. I mean, I, I guess the 70s stuff comes into play later because one of the gangs they fight against are uh, the Disco Boys or whatever. <laughs> the Disco Led by, uh, by Eddie, uh, Izzard, Eddie Izzard, of all people. Who is wonderful. I just, everyone is so good in this movie, but this movie's so weird <laughs> it's yeah i mean it, it's just one of those things like this movie feels like a, a bundle of really interesting ideas that nobody sat down and really thought about how to tell an interesting story with because the story of this is incredibly bare bones uh and i can lay it out for you right here so you know hardcore spoilers from this point on uh mystery men is about a bunch of loser superheroes who are thrust into stopping a super villain who is released from prison by the superhero because he's losing sponsors. They are pressed into service to try and stop him, even though they are underpowered and basically useless, basically useless. And they do. That's, that's it. That's the whole movie. Right. And, and it doesn't really try to do anything more than that. 
and and that's fine but this movie feels like somebody really went to work very hard to build this world to come up with these ideas these jokes these characters these and then costumes. just never, <laughs> these costumes and then just didn't really figure out what they the best way to execute much of anything yeah and and that is is a problem um I feel like this is one of those movies that does work in individual moments, right? This is another one of those instances where the individual scenes themselves mostly work Again, some long edits, some bad camera work from here, you know, here and there, but the individual scenes generally function, but the, the way that they're assembled into a broader narrative is pretty unsatisfying. Yeah. And, and that, you know, is unfortunate because there's a lot of talent on display here. So it, the the thrust of the film is Captain Amazing is starting to lose sponsors. He's so good at what he does that he's captured all the villains and everybody's basically safe now. And as a result, people aren't willing to sponsor him or stand behind him anymore because he's not really doing much. Um, so the breaking up of this fight at the retirement home party is, is seen as a low point for him. Uh, we have to mention the fact that his manager is played by Ricky Jay which I absolutely love. And I, be, I literally believe they hired Ricky Jay just so that he could deliver the line to Lance where Lance says, well, can't you fix this? And he goes, Lance, I'm not a magician <laughs> because Ricky Jay is one of the it's, greatest magicians yeah. of all time. <laughs> I, well, mean, I mean, he was, he was also know. the magician in that X-Files episode, right? Mm -hmm. I always love when he's, I, yep. I don't know. I love him too. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, no, he did a, he had a, a, a pretty decent film career on the back half of things. He was in a, a couple, you know, I think he was in at least one Bond movie, maybe two. Um, and then he hooked up with uh, um, Paul Thomas Anderson and he was in most of his like late nineties, right. early two thousand right. stuff, uh, which he has a, a very short, but really satisfying turn in Magnolia. That's really good. <laughs> which is a great movie. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, so he's in it and, and it's, he's great. I mean, he's only in it for two scenes. I, I think like, I, I really think they hired him just to make the magician joke. I think that's the only, <laughs> somebody thought that would be funny. Um, and so Lance decides, uh, oh, I guess that's the thing. His, they do have a great joke sequence that is unequivocally good mm -hmm. where Ben Stiller has figured out that Captain Amazing's alter ego is a, a popular lawyer in the city named Lance Hunt. And he gets into a fight where he says, Captain Amazing is Lance Hunt. And they're like, that's impossible, Roy. Captain Where's Captain Amazing glasses? doesn't wear glasses. And Lance Hunt does. It, and, the, and Roy just looks at him and goes like, he just takes them off. And William H. Macy, totally deadpan, just looks at him and goes like, how would he see? <laughs> it's... It's so good. Obviously, it's just riffing on the Superman wearing glasses thing. But it's it's pitch perfect and it's executed and so well it was it was great because instead of saying like how come nobody's figured that out yet they actually had people being gullible and innocent yeah. about it and we never get to see that part we only get yeah. the sarcasm of why hasn't anybody figured out clark kent is superman so exactly. i don't know it was so sweet <laughs> but i mean just seeing him be like how would he see roy i mean where how would he if he took his glasses off how could he <laughs> it's just it's so good um but so he decides to release his greatest rival, his arch nemesis, Casanova Frankenstein. Uh, 
Played by uh, Jeffrey Rush. Played by Jeffrey Rush. Now this, and it should be pointed out that this was the beginning of Jeffrey Rush's very, very uh, over-the-top acting jobs. Mm -hmm. Because shortly after this, he took Barbosa in right. Pirates of the Caribbean. Just which, four years later. Oh, and and we're, the world is better for that. Like, we are better mm -hmm. for Jeffrey Rush being Captain Barbosa. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, really, the I was completely unaware of him until he played uh, Philip Henslow in Shakespeare in Love. That's the first time I remember seeing Jeffrey Rush in anything. And that came out the, the year before Mystery Men, I guess. But I mean... Um, yeah, you know, nobody in America knew who Jeffrey Rush was at this no. point. He had done film. He had done a lot. He had done some really I, good Shakespeare. I saw Shine with Mom and Dad, and yeah, that's it was true. a drama, Shine, and yeah. I was like, okay, it okay, because <laughs> he was true. a genius. <laughs> yeah, Shine had had come out. That's true. I had forgotten about Shine, um, but Shine did make a, a large impact. He was even not. He was nominated for an Oscar for that one, wasn't he? Uh, nominated or won? I can't. I thought he I won. I can't remember. Um, I don't know. Drama's he, not really you know, my strength. Comic book movies are more my strength. <laughs> yeah, I know about comic book. Um, <laughs> he won best actor for that. Yes. So, so I mean, but in An terms Academy of like award-winning actor is in this movie. <laughs> that's right. An Academy Award winner played Casanova Frankenstein <laughs> in Mystery Men. And that is um, why I love Jeffrey Rush. But that just shows how Jeffrey Rush, I mean, Jeffrey Rush just takes projects that he thinks is interesting. That's it. Yeah, he doesn't like, this care. This looks fun. And he, and he is, is clearly having, having so he is having much a really fun. Good it's so time. good. Um, so he decides to get him out of jail, which is another great scene in the film as, as Lance Hunt, the, the lawyer, appears at his parole hearing, which the director of the parole board has already said he's not up for parole. We're not going to parole him. This is just a formality. But he shows up and reads a letter from Captain Amazing saying that everybody deserves a second chance, which after it's read, it cuts and we see over his shoulder and it's just his grocery list. It's like a bananas and nothing. <laughs> so he just makes it up. But so he gets him released to cause havoc so the Captain Amazing will have something to do. Um, and, you know, our, our you know intrepid heroes, the three of them, are, are sort of just watching all of these events unfold on the news like everybody else and trying to figure out if there's something that they can do. And so the, the bulk of the next chunk is just us getting to know these characters. So we find out that Azaria lives at home with his mom and doesn't have a British accent and is steals her silverware because uh, he throws uh, he's called he the Blue Raja and he throws forks. He refuses to throw knives because he doesn't want to be a what does he say? I don't want to be knifey boy. You know, I don't want to be that. Yeah, like it's it's all about being sort of refined, and right. and he believes that throwing forks is more refined than throwing knives. And throwing knives, and, and like and I so, said, this is based on a comic book trope that just does not play with most audiences. So I don't right. think anybody was going to get this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I'm once the new Suicide Squad from James Gunn releases, because apparently that's where Gunn went. Because uh, uh, David Dastalmachian is in it, and he plays Polka Dot Man. <laughs> who, if you know anything about... I mean, Polka Dot Man is literally a guy who has polka dots on his jumpsuit, and when he rips off specific polka dots and throws them at people, they have various effects. That's Polka Dot Man. So I, I hope that that turns some people on to the truly, truly strange 
side of comic books that Marvel for all of the good things they've done for superheroes has soundly and profoundly turned their backs on, right? Like in the Falcon and winter soldier series that just wrapped up, they took an old captain America villain called flag smasher. It was just a guy who was strong and he punched things, you know, smashing flags and they turned him into like, uh, the, Basically, he's like the head of a criminal organization called the Flag Smashers, a resistance group. And or, or she she is. They changed the character. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a good way to use that character, but it's a much more legitimate way, because how are you going to just have a really strong guy that just, you know, punches people and be the, the villain? You can't do that. And and so but that's sort of how comic books work. Right. It's like, yeah. that's just what they are. And so this movie is very much leaning into that and and for the best. Uh, I think my favorite sort of background, though, is uh, William H. Macy's character. He yeah. he goes home to his wife and family. And, you know, he's like coming in the front door. He's putting his hat on the, the coat rack and he's taking his shovel and putting it in the corner. You know, it's it's just this completely domestic, totally normal, totally everyday moment. And his um, wife kind of chews him out a little bit. Yeah, she <laughs> hates the fact that he just won't give this up. She's like, what are you doing? Why why are you continuing to do this? You, you're, you're completely not needed. Um, and they, have, they mine a lot of, you know, sort of comedy gold out of that. We get a couple of scenes where... Uh, later, really, the the sort of centerpiece scene of the film is all of these superheroes coming for a recruitment session as they're opening up their ranks to, to add new members. And uh, they host it at the, the shoveler's <laughs> home because he has, he a, has pool. a pool. <laughs> and, and like as his wife is leaving for the day, she's like, if anybody throws up in my pool, I'm divorcing you. <laughs> like, this is it. <laughs> well, You're, we're done here. You know, it actually kind of brings up a story thing about the movie is that the main character focus like we have a trio this is an ensemble but the Mm -hmm. main character focus is still mr furious yes it's right and i understand that because ben stiller was kind of hot at the moment and he Mm -hmm. was the youngest male co-star however his arc is not as interesting i feel like he is a minor character and he would have been best sort of sidekicked and I think William H. Macy should have been the main character. And I kind of wonder if he wasn't at some point. I think at some point he probably was. Because there was, well, his, leader, his arc with his know? wife is so much more interesting because she's saying, if you can't make this work, I am leaving you. And she really does mean it. Yes. Um, and it, their story is a little bit more satisfying. And I think it would have made, um, I think it would have made a more interesting focal point to the story yeah i i think this definitely smacks of a project that once ben stiller was brought on his character instantaneously was granted more screen time because he's a one-note joke right like his joke is really one note he gets angry he gets flustered he has all kinds of of sayings that he gets wrong Right. That's kind of like his thing where he'll say he'll he'll try and deliver like a witty statement or saying and he'll he'll screw it up. Um, He's the frustrated guy who can't who can't come up with a good comeback. I mean, it's a George Costanza problem. Yes. I mean, and he's very much riffing on the George Costanza frustrated character. Um, But his I mean, I guess I guess it's OK to say here that his major arc 
is that he has a waitress that he's got a crush on and she agrees to go out with him and that's yep. it that that is the extent of his arc um is that he works up the courage to to ask a girl out uh which you know i honestly i've there have been characters in movies that i've enjoyed that i've had less uh, i'll have to to be honest about that but but it feels unfair that we've got william h macy's great character arc that's getting no screen time and that that sucks and it's just been stiller trying desperately to hit on claire forlani yeah like i could not i i don't care about this <laughs> But I mean, he was hot. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, he had something about Mary mm-hmm. had hit cable guy. The cab- had come the cable out. guy was big. I mean, like, you know, he he'd had a couple of really big breakout successes that this film was obviously trying to capitalize on uh, just in name value. And, and that's okay. I mean, that's, that's how, film industry works you know you want to hitch your wagon to somebody that's going to get you as far as possible but it it does feel like in in making roy a larger focus of the story instead of just being one of this trio of interesting characters we definitely lose something um not enough to make it a deal breaker like oh you know the film's made a huge mistake but it just doesn't capitalize on some other a William H Macy is a much better actor than Ben Stiller. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't, I don't think anybody's gonna fight me on that. I think Ben Stiller has. I think <laughs> come you know, at me. <laughs> come at me. Ben Stiller has definitely grown into a much more capable actor. Obviously, his his more dramatic output now is is quite good when he he takes the time to do it. And I, I've always liked actors that feel comfortable. You know, I I'll do the you know, hardcore Oscar bait drama and I'll do it well. And then I'll immediately turn around and make a fart humor show. You know, like I I don't mind actors that are willing to do that, but, but Ben Stiller is is certainly in the the category of ones that it's like most of the time they don't work. Yeah. And in any case, I, I think Roy does get some good lines. Uh, I do love the one when they're leaving one of the major uh, set one of the major sets of this film is a diner that they go to all the time to eat after they've had their, their exploits and they're leaving the diner and the two guys are kind of ditching him. And he's like, I didn't realize that I was in his team with a lazy boy. <laughs> and, and he's like, oh, he's trying to think of another name. He's like, lazy boy, lazy boy in the recliner. Right. And it's like, <laughs> you know, like there are a couple of like very solid lines that he gets, but the vast majority of them, it's just, the entire comedic extent, okay, like, or, I, don't, I don't want to get too far ahead, but basically, eventually, they realize that to fight Casanova Frankenstein, once um, once Lance Hunt slash Captain Amazing disappears, because Frankenstein traps him because he's an overconfident moron. Yeah, couldn't see that coming. Um, they they open up and they start recruiting and they can't find anybody where we get, we get so many cameos in that scene. Yeah. But eventually, they add Janine Garofalo. Who is... Perfection. She's so good in this. And the only thing that they can think to do to develop a, a sort of like rapport between her and Stiller is that they just look at each other and go like, well, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, I don't know. What are you going to do? Well, I don't know. We'll do something. You know, it's, it's just that. And it's yeah. like, man, is this all you can, is this all it's, you figured out? You know, trying to do this kind of weird antagonistic brother sister thing. Yeah. Like, and it almost goes over the top. To make sure that and I'm going to use a, a term that didn't exist in 1999 yet to ship them, 
It mm. doesn't want you to ship them. It wants yeah, you to ship it's... Roy and Claire Forlani. So Janine Garofalo and Roy have to kind of hate each other. And so it, right. it it goes out of its way to create this relationship dynamic that just wasn't necessary. <laughs> yeah, it's just overly antagonistic for no reason. Roy doesn't doesn't like her because he wants to keep the team the same. Basically, he doesn't really want anybody new. Um, and to, he's threatened by her in. ability because she she, she carries a bowling ball yeah. that contains her dead father's skull, Carmine the Bowler. Carmine the Bowler. <laughs> and the skull is sentient and it destroys things and she launches the, the ball. That's she right. is she is a legitimately cool superhero in this She's movie. Good. Um, um, and Janine Garofalo is just she is awesome. I, yeah. I, I love her. I I am. I am not afraid to admit that I have long had a thing for Janine Garofalo. Completely, yeah, like a, just my com- girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, just completely un- unnecessary. I, I, I just have always, I, I, I just love how a beautiful, st- funny woman. What's not? To she's love? beautiful, funny, and she's strong, and she's, she's, le- she's one of those people that seems legitimately powerful right yeah. and I, it just makes me think of that you know i don't watch family guy anymore but I, I just think of that joke where cleveland is like they're talking about like women they find attractive and he, he says like margaret thatcher and everyone's <laughs> like oh and he's like does no one find power sexy no one find... <laughs> and, and it's just i've always thought of that be like oh okay i, I get that. I, she, that I mean she just doesn't she's never really taken you know the the hot chick roles and i've no. and that somehow yeah. makes her an even hotter chick to me like you are just so cool because you're just a good actress and you're funny and you're beautiful janine garofalo call me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean she's just very interesting and of course i, I you know I, I love her her political stances and and yeah. the, the sort of way that she uh presents herself and has used some of her her you know, standing in the world for, for some positive things. But in any case, she's great in this. She's perfectly cast as this character. It's, it's very much the, the sort of punk goth that the goth movement had transitioned into in the late nineties. She's got the raccoon eyeliner. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's very, very pronounced again, somebody, you know, production designed the hell out of this movie. They just didn't know when to stop or when to Mm -hmm. have a comp, have a meeting with somebody and be like, is this all okay? I just think Should they we be skipped doing that. this much? <laughs> it's like, is this is this a, too much, guys? Should we rein it in? And somebody's like, nah, just just go. And so, you know, she eventually gets introduced, and and like you said, it it, it is a weird relationship uh, as that gets built. So, the the Captain Amazing thing is kind of strange. I mean, again, they they play him as a dope. You know, like he's he he believes he's way smarter than he actually is, is the point. And and Frankenstein now, you know, abuses that uh, hubris to capture him. And then eventually it seems that like he's going to to kill him in order to, to run the city. There's a lot of humor exacted from their first meeting. Um, he's like telling Frankenstein to like take off these various devices that he knows he has. Uh, you know, strapped to his body so that he can't attack him. And, and then he eventually gets taken by a very easy, you know, trap and, and captured. But Roy just so happens to be observing. He's, he's watching Frankenstein's house when all this goes down. And so he knows that something's happened to Captain Amazing where nobody else has that assuredness. And so that kind did, of kicks off you, everything did else. Did you feel like that was supposed to be Eddie watching 
the house? Um, I feel like in a previous version of this film, yeah. Eddie was the one who was sitting in the bushes watching all this stuff. Just with how his wife talks about how he's so absorbed in the superhero thing and dedicating so much time to it. That would have made more sense. Yeah. I mean, Roy doesn't seem very motivated. Um, yeah. I mean, he does. I guess he is the one in the alleyway that sees the disco boys back. Um, they do sort of set that up. And then he, you know, the disco boys were common, uh, you know, allies of Frankenstein or whatever, which they have a whole seventies joke <laughs> vibe thing that they do for this whole movie. Um, you know, so they, I think they try to justify it, but it, it doesn't necessarily fit with Roy's character. Um, the next morning we do get a great scene. We find out that he is a, a junker at a, at a, a, a wrecking yard. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to break down this massive tank, which, of course, is set up and pay off for something later. Um, you know, we get a, that's really so we don't really get Roy's slice of life until much later than everybody else's um, to sort of see what he's all about. But it's a great scene because another one it's another one where Roy is sort of brought to the brink. He's like, well, maybe if you gave me the tools I needed, I would be able to, you know, break this stuff down. And, and the lady that he works for, I guess, Sally. Um, I recognize the actress. She did a lot of things in the 90s. Uh, very distinctive look. It sort of reminds me a little bit of um, Mama Fratelli mm-hmm. from The Goonies. You know, that that same type of of, of actor. Yeah, she's a good character actor. And, and she's just like, junk it. And he's like, you tell me to junk it one more. Junk it! <laughs> junk it! <laughs> and then he just, he just completely backs down. I think he's also <laughs> eating... Is he not eating like Yoplait or something? He's, he's like, yeah, he's like just eating fruit again. A lot of this film's like really legitimate humor is just all background choices, right? It's just all like, okay, Mr. Furious is is a really big fan of, of like fruity yogurt, you know? It's a movie that's difficult to explain the parts that are funny because the jokes are not explainable. It's like, well, well he's <laughs> eating yogurt. That's he's funny. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They're, they're it's like, that's a- not funny. Well, it was funny, but you had to be there. <laughs> they're running across the yard in front of Frankenstein's house in like a serpentine pattern in the wide open, <laughs> in visible light. You know, it's just that's that's the kind of joke that this movie has um, to to offer you. That just the ridiculousness of these guys who are not good at this trying to be. I do love the conversation right after they're walking across the yard where they hear the noises. And they're like, what could it be? Oh, it's an anthrax delivery device. Or, oh, it could be a <laughs> thing that's going to shock us in the balls or, or something. And, it, and then it just ends up being the sprinkler system. You know? It's <laughs> like they're so bad at what they're doing. And it's, again, it's it's very absurdist. It's very silly. But if, if you are kind of okay with that kind of humor, there is some stuff to really laugh at in this movie. Um, but, again, well, find- for... For every funny thing like that, there's a bad joke that doesn't land to offset well, it. You know, I th- I think the best example of that idea at work in this film is is contained within the introductions of the last two group members. Yes, so let's go and address those two group members. Um, so let's start the, with the positive. <laughs> <laughs> so I already mentioned Garofalo. Garofalo's good. <laughs> Uh, then we have fresh off of Good Burger, Kel. Kel Mitchell. Kel Mitchell, um, who is playing the Invisible Boy, 
who is incapable of demonstrating his invisibility, but feels like he's invisible because no one ever pays attention to him. Uh, as demonstrated by one of the good actual spoken jokes in the film, as he, they go to meet him and recruit him and they, they go into his apartment and they're walking past his dad's like watching TV and his dad's like, Hey dad, I'm headed to my room with three strange men. <laughs> his, his dad <laughs> does nothing, resp- does not respond. That's probably the best, just one of the best like spoken jokes in the movie. It's like dad, <laughs> three strange and, men are coming to my bedroom. And kill Mitchell is really funny. I mean, I was a he huge is, fan yeah. of, of, uh, of both, um, his television work and, and the movies that he was in, you know, he didn't have quite the career that um, uh, Keenan Thompson did. Um, no, but Keenan and Kel, that, I mean, that's like that's iconic humor from my childhood. I just I thought they were so funny, and his character is fantastic. However, right. um, yeah, I will say I do love, you know, I've on the production design of this film a lot and and with good reason but i love his room yes because his room is legitimately covered wall to wall with independent comic book stuff mm-hmm. and and you know maquettes and statues you know just he he is a comic book fan and and you can see and that's that why they let everything. him join because they feel bad right. even though he doesn't he he clearly is not invisible and can't be invisible even though he, he says he can they let him join because he wants to be a hero right and and the production design of his room does that right it's it's not like what oh in uh, the green lantern movie right in the green lantern yeah. movie uh, Ryan Reynolds goes to visit his family and he's got like a little nephew, right? So he goes into the nephew's room and you can tell that somebody had been told this needs to look like a little boy's room, right? So it needs toys, it needs like rocket ships, you know, whatever. If if you watch that scene, I want to say there are no less than 12 Rubik's Cubes in that room, <laughs> right? Just everywhere. It's he just, just like getting him for his birthday. how many Rubik's Cubes does a kid need? Apparently, according to Green Lantern, 12. Because that's like lazy room production design where you're like, eh, you know, just put some shit around. Who cares? Well, it's, you know? it's the misunderstanding that children don't have personalities sure. and that the personality of a child is child. Yeah, <laughs> it is child. <laughs> I'm I interested toy. in children's things. <laughs> I like children's things. I enjoy to run and play. Um, yeah, it's it's just very, very basic. Whereas this one, I think the, the over you know, sort of overbearing production design actually worked in its favor because it did tell us a lot about that character in a relatively short amount of time. Um, But then the next character that we're introduced to, the next member of the team, um, is an actor that we both adore and and love. And that, of course, is Paul Rubens. Rubens. Now, this is this is post Troubles, Paul Rubens. Um, A lot of the bitter with the sweet with Pee Wee Herman. That's right. Um, So. Pee Wee Herman, of course, had been a, a cultural icon for a, a, about a three-year period in the late 1980s. Um, probably something that wouldn't... I, I don't think that could be replicated. I don't know what no. mixture of events led to Pee Wee Herman being the thing that Pee Wee Herman became. But Paul Rubens certainly was not that guy. And um, Pee Wee was, was just a character. Mm-hmm. And he got into some trouble. Um <laughs> 
In, Look it up if you don't know. About yeah, it. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about it. Basically, the he internet's was, talked. <laughs> he was doing the things that people would typically do at a theater that he was attending, and he got in trouble for it because he was famous, and people didn't think that was good. Yeah. Um. And and you know, it's it's a lesson, I guess. Uh, we want to talk about and complain about cancel culture today. Guess what? It ain't new. It's been around for yeah. a real. Long <laughs> We've time. been doing this a long time. Uh, it only becomes a problem when the people in power don't like being the ones who are being canceled. That's that's really it. So, but in in Paul Rubin's <clears throat> favor, he. He, he took his licks and took a break from the spotlight and and has has made He's come I would back. consider yeah. a complete recovery in his career. Absolutely. Um, but this character is bad. Yes. Uh, so he the 90s were rough. He didn't work a ton. I, I think one of the last major things that he had done before this was he you know had a brief cameo as Oswald Cobblepot's father in uh, Batman Returns and he had trouble getting work and ultimately this was, was one of his big kind of comebacks. Uh, he was in blow in the nineties, which of course was a, a pretty big, big deal. Um, he had that, that row there, but, but so this was uh, the time that he was starting to get work again. And so he plays the spleen. Um, he does get a good line cause he's trying to explain his origin and he says that he's, he was walking down the street and he farted and he didn't want to be blamed for it. So he blamed it on an old gypsy woman who just happened to be passing by and a uh, big mistake. Right. And yeah, so she like it uses, it uses the, uh, the Romani trope and yep. I mean, it works though. It, it's, it's, it, it's so ridiculous that it kind yeah. of works. Well, I mean, um, Stephen King used that trope. So if Stephen King could get away with it, this movie can too. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, but so the spleen, his his real ability is just to smell bad, to direct to directionally uh, attack people with his farts, mm-hmm. and and Rubens and, seems to be enjoying himself, but it's it's a bit ridiculous. <laughs> well, and it it's just I I'm I'm not I am not about to sit here and say that I don't think farts are funny because I do. Sure, um, fart noises are hilarious. Farts hysterical. However. This movie, one of the things that we've <laughs> sort of fixated on is excessiveness. Yes. That there is such a thing as taking something that is so pure, like a fart, and driving it into the ground and making it not funny because it's like, okay, I get it, he farts. Like, come on, give me something else. Yeah, uh, but that's that's pretty much it. It's a one-note character. He does also have pimples, um, bad. Yeah. Bad pimples. Bad makeup. Just bad yeah, makeup. Bad his makeup. clothes are there's filthy. A lot of bad Why is he so dirty? Movie. Yeah, there's a lot of bad makeup in this movie. And again, it, there are things that just don't hang together, right? So we've got Kel. I mean, and the diner scenes are often the best expression of just how completely scattershot the costuming in this movie is. You've got William H. Macy in like a flannel shirt and a leather jacket. Looks totally normal. You've got Roy in, in his like proto-Matrix gear. You've got Kel in a letterman's jacket or, or some amalgamation thereof. You've got the spleen in this weird 70s, like Joseph in the Technicolor dreamcoat looking thing. And it's filthy. And it's disgusting. And then you've got Hank Azaria wearing like a 1950s dad going to the, the office outfit. And it's like, what is this? None and, of these things work together. you know. And maybe if we knew more about them as people, 
their fashion choices would make sense, but we're really only given these sort of cartoony looks into their supposed powers, and so their their fashion identity doesn't make any sense. It doesn't relate to them as characters in any way. Right, and you know, I get it. I if you go and look at the history of comics, you know, comics artists are not fashionistas, right? They're most of them just you know develop a a repertoire of clothing styles that they feel comfortable drawing. And then that's kind of what they do. So maybe it's referencing that, that just like you can have these varying influences and you just kind of throw them on the page and hope that it works, but it, it doesn't feel it's so scattered that it just, there's no purpose to it at all. And not even a purpose that you can easily, easily suss out while watching be like, Oh, they're all dressed so strangely because this world is a weird mix up of all of these different ages and time periods, because when superheroes arrived, all that stuff kind of ended and everybody started investing time in superhero stuff and nobody cares about fashion anymore. So you just kind of wear what you can find. Like anything would be enough, but it's just so far out there. Um, and then once we get to the pool scene and we're in being introduced to all these other superheroes, their costumes are also just completely scattershot. I mean, I think there was a dude with like a, what were those, those color changing shirts from the nineties where you like, when you got hot, it would change color and stuff. There's like those, it's just, it's very all over the place. And you know, if it's not enough to just make me go like, ugh but it feels like a missed opportunity where the film could have done something really interesting and it just doesn't. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about the pool scene. The The best scene in this movie is the pool scene as they are recruiting new members. It it's looks not without its cringe though. It, Oh, very much so. But am I wrong in thinking that somebody just watched like a John Waters movie and then decided that they were going to do this scene? Cause that's, um, I the felt colors. like they watched that or the barbecue scene or the haircutting scene in Edward in Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> yes, like it's it's John Waters by way of of Tim Burton. You know the hanging lanterns in the backyard. The house is bright pink. You know that that sort of like just absolutely insane pastel nineteen fifties thing. Ornate hedgerows. It's it's just it's off the wall. It. it Again, it's probably Edward Scissorhands. Somebody really liked Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher on this, right? Like somebody had a directive somewhere that said, you need to make this movie look a little bit like these movies. And that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But man, you do watching something like this does make you appreciate how good Tim Burton is at being Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. Like you can you can bag on Tim Burton Love all you him or want. Hate him. You can absolutely bag on him because modern Tim Burton is not good. But but you, those movies he did well. Mm, you, they are so good. They're so good, and they and they are just incomparably put together. They're just so impressive. Um, like watch Beetlejuice and tell me that's not a masterpiece. Yeah, it it's, is. It is. And so this movie's trying to be that, and it is just not at all working. Uh, at all but uh this is cameos 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 uh i had completely forgotten that one dane cook uh, is in this film uh, as the waffler i uh, mean who just flings a waffle iron do you remember when everybody was like we need a funny guy i know dane cook dane because cook. about 10 minutes after somebody did that we never did that again because yeah. it's not funny. It's not funny. Uh, 
so so he makes an appearance uh we actually get as as pencil man we get a what may be one of the earliest on-screen no costume appearances of one mr doug jones Mm-hmm. Um, who Doug Jones? Uh, you have seen a movie with Doug Jones in it, you know, dear you listener. Have. You've seen um, more than one. I Doug promise. Jones is in everything. Uh, Doug Jones is is one of the most prolific, I guess you could say, like prosthetic wearing actors. In in he's a contortionist uh, officially. He is beloved by one Guillermo del Toro, who puts him in everything. He played the uh, fishman in Shape of Water, I believe. Um, he was he was Abe Sapien, he's not Abe, in voice. In the first one, he was in the second. Second one, that is his yeah. voice. Yeah. But the first one, um, it was David Hyde. He was he was Abe Sapien. He um, was uh, he I was mean, in he's done Batman so much Returns. TV. He's <laughs> been mean, in he Batman. Was in comic book he's movies. in everything. Like he's just in everything. He was the Silver Surfer. He's I mean it just if if there's ever been a slim guy in a lot of makeup or a suit it was probably doug it jones, was doug jones. <laughs> uh he right now he's playing commander saru on star trek discovery uh which is he's gotten a lot of attention for and rightly so he's i mean unfortunately this is not an accomplishment but he is the best character on that show um again that's when you your characters are all that terrible it's it's not hard yeah, to rise take above what you but can get. um I, I, I shouldn't say anything because it's probably fine. I haven't been paying attention, but he was the it's pan and pan's labyrinth as well. That was another yeah. you know, sort of big thing, but yeah. So I, I love Doug Jones and he makes an appearance here out of costume or sort of out of costume as a uh, pencil man with his son, which is adorable. Yeah, it was, <laughs> like, that was pencil really man good. with pencil was pencil lad or two pencil generations. <laughs> That's really cute. <laughs> it's so good. Um, and then of course there's just a string of, of, bad stereotype things after that uh the i'll admit when i watched this with the family and my wife giggled just a little bit at the period um yeah because she only shows up four days (laughs) four days (laughs) out of the month or whatever and you know i mean that's a terrible joke it is but it Um, in the moment my favorite part of the joke was when she was like you got a problem with that and they're like no 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 that's fine (laughs) Um, but so they get through the party. They're despondent because they haven't found any other superheroes of any measure that are, are worth their time. And then Jeannie Garofalo arrives as the bowler. Um, and we do get a little bit of CG. The bowling ball head is is an early you know 3D model. It's just a ball, so it doesn't look that bad, uh, which is nice. But the camera work in which it's flying around and through people is, is pretty rough. Again, feels very yeah. Sam Raimi, like we just put mm-hmm. the camera on a two by four and ran it around kind of stuff um i do love that uh, the shoveler's entire backyard is astroturf i did want to mention that because i think that's yeah. incredible another very tim Burton-y very tim burton thing yeah so again this this is a superhero film reacting to how terrible superhero films can be when the primary visual language for those films was established by tim burton which is kind of ridiculous yeah. to think about Right, that Tim Burton was was, the, was guy the guy who was figuring out how superheroes were supposed to look. He was like, the only one what? who made it work. Yeah, I mean, he, that's true. Yeah, he was one of the only ones know, that made it work. We had like uh, you know a few '80s, like late '80s superhero flicks, and some '90s superhero flicks, like that that weird Spider-Man movie. Um, 
But Tim Burton was the only guy who was like, no, I'm going to make a superhero movie and you're going to like it. Mm-hmm. And we did. Um, and it was even more pronounced that Tim Burton was responsible for it because all the Batman movies that he didn't direct were terrible. It's true. It's very true. <laughs> so um, like it was it was proving to directors that like that's how you make a superhero movie because mm-hmm. it worked. Yeah. Like it, it was. I mean, it was more than a success. It was a cultural revolution. Like the the oh, year yeah. that Batman came out, like it cannot. We were shaving be bat symbols in our heads. Ah. Oh. Yeah, it cannot be overstated how big that movie was. Like, I, it, it was everywhere, everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. Every kid that I knew in school was excited about it. Like, it was, it was insane. Um. So yeah, it it, it makes sense, but it's just crazy to look at this which is so obviously trying to follow on that and think that that's what people thought superhero movies had to be. It's, yeah. it's just a very interesting thing to consider. Um, so Garoppolo joins the team and, and now kind of finally the movie gets going right up until this point, there's really not a ton happening. Um, there's some humor. There's definitely some good beats, but I mean, this is not a, this is not a fast movie. Uh, by any stretch, right? Um, no, I was kind of amazed at how long the movie was. <laughs> yeah, I remembered this being like an hour and a half. You know, like me the, too. It's straight two hours, which is just insanity. Like I can't. There's plenty to mine here. Like I don't think. I, I don't think they ring too much out of the premise that doesn't, you know, deserve to be there. But it's. It definitely could be shorter, no doubt. I mean, like, we talk about that all the time. Movies can always be shorter. <laughs> like, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, so once the team is is established and built, um, I, I think now the movie can kind of, it feels like it's it's finally kind of getting started because they go on their first kind of mission, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what their idea behind the mission was supposed to be. Um but uh, it's it's interesting, to say the least. So they go on their first mission, and they basically decide to go right after Casanova Frankenstein. Like, no quarter, no stopping. They, it's almost like they leave the pool party and then immediately go hunt down his his uh, Corvette limousine, uh, which is, is one of the signature uh, sort of things from this movie that I think people remember. Because it's a Corvette Stingray, but it's it's been extended into limousine format. But it's still just a two-seater which I think is hilarious. Like even in the back, it's, it's just a two seater. Um, but we need to pause here and say that the last thing that happens at the pool scene is we get a, what, five second, maybe 10 second drop of Smash Mouth's all-star. Mm-hmm. And so here's where we need to clarify something. Um, this is the original film mm-hmm. needle drop for Smash Mouth's all-star. Um, the video for Smash Mouth's All-Star is based on this film. If you've ever watched that and said, like, why are all these famous people in this Smash Mouth video? That's because they, this was tied to the release of that single uh, for that band. Now, I don't I don't want to say that that's good or bad at this point. Um Obviously, we all know what happened to that song in the intervening it years. It became perfect and legendary in a legendary cinematic masterpiece called Shrek. 
That's right. Shrek would would eventually catapult the song to ever. multiple two years later, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is like the album had dropped, the song had flatlined, Smash Mouth was going nowhere. Except well, maybe the, the Iowa ironic, State Fair. I don't know. It was the ironic usage of the song in Shrek that gave it a second life. And it's it's funny, it's it's ironically used in this movie too. Yes. It's used for the same effect. It is. <laughs> so nobody takes All Star seriously, which is sad, because I'm pretty sure Smash, Smash Mouth meant for that to be serious. <laughs> like they, yes. you should be an all-star. Believe in yourself. And this is like, haha. No. No, you're a joke <laughs> and no one cares. Um and and so it's just it. It gives me no end of joy to know that this is where Smash Mouth begins. Yeah. And that it's tied to to this film of all films. Uh, so it's it's just it's an interesting sort of little cultural oddity. Just something to consider in, as you go about your day, as you're drinking coffee in the break room at your job. To be like, huh, Smash Mouth actually released that single for Mystery Men, not Shrek. Yeah. And so it's... It, it, it really is a little microcosm of this movie, right? Just misguided attempts to be good and cool, kind of not working out you know, for anybody. Uh, so their first big attack, as we said, is on uh, Casanova, Frankenstein's beautiful and this stretch is Corvette. really funny. This, this whole sequence, I thought, was really well done. This is good, yes. This sequence is hilarious. They're in some beat up old 50s junker that the shoveler drives and then they get out and they just start going to town in this guy's car. <laughs> like they're just the, punching it as hard as they can. Roy was, gets on the hood. It had my favorite Blue beca- Raja moment where he he uses the fork to scratch the car. <laughs> that was perfect. He's just walking down the side of the car with a fork scratching it. It's so good. Roy gets furious <laughs> on the hood and attempts to remove the the Corvette symbol on the front and fails. (laughs) He's just smacking the hood with these little fists. It's got, it's got this great lead up where it has one of those, one of those bizarre wide angle close-ups, but it starts on his face and then starts on his face and zooms out. So as he's getting like Hulk enraged and it just goes nowhere like that. That was an excellent use of the weird close-ups. Yes, that would be a good one, right? To to sort of start close and then pull back and you see him, you know, going furious or whatever. Like, that's fine. But there are so many unforced, unnecessary head-on close-ups in this movie. It's just exceedingly strange. Um, So really, you know, we get a few more like just character building moments with the team as they're trying to get together. But now that they're on Franken, uh, Frankenstein's radar, they get attacked by Tony P or Tony Pompadour, uh, who is Eddie Izzard's character. They get uh, jumped in an alleyway and they're rescued by the, the final member of the Mystery Men, the Sphinx, who they had mentioned before as a guy who supposedly could make guns fall apart with his mind, which is <laughs> such, such a specific power. Um, but uh, he's played here by... And, and this may be the most inspired casting in this film, in a, in a film that genuinely has really great casting. Like, it's the one thing this movie gets pretty universally right is how good the cast is. Uh, he's played by Wes Studi, of all people. Um, yeah. And I, I, I love Wes Studi. Uh, I, one of my favorite films of all time is The Last of the Mohicans. 
Uh, I love it. It's a cocaine fueled Michael Mann revolutionary war story. <laughs> That's, it is at best a problematic film. It shouldn't but it, work. I mean, it has, but it's Daniel Day Lewis. It's it's doing his thing. Ex, I mean, it's excellent production design for that one. And and Wes Studi plays one of the villain characters in it, and he's incredible. It's a brilliant performance. Um, and and here we get to see him just a scant few years later playing this velour-suited The Sphinx, trying to teach these loser superheroes how to be better at what they're trying to do. But his thing, and and in a film that is exceedingly goofy, this may be the goofiest, is he just delivers chiasmus mm-hmm. constantly. Um, you know, the man who walks in anger will only walk angrily, right? That kind of <laughs> stuff, just over and over again, these little nuggets of wisdom that when everybody just goes, he's, like, whoa. He's absolutely whoa. another type of comic book trope Yep. that, that we've, we've seen so many times before. This, the wise, sage, slightly older, more experienced person in the super group right like that is a that's a real character type yeah the maestro and the master yeah this is such a wonderful riff on that like because he's he is completely ineffectual yeah. and that's the joke is that everybody's really into what he's saying but he doesn't really accomplish much other than getting them to believe in themselves right and and that that's why i've always wondered why they didn't save the the smash mouth all-star drop for when the heroes finally do feel heroic. Like, that's I, when it should have I, I hit. swear, something about that song screams sarcasm. Sarcastic, yeah. No one has ever used it genuinely. It's true. <laughs> Poor Smash Mouth. Poor I'm Smash sorry Mouth. I make fun of you so much. <laughs> so we're really at the halfway point once Sphinx shows up and starts trying to sort of assemble the team into an actual actual functional superhero group, which they most certainly are not at this point. Uh, so Roy goes off and does his own thing. They eventually meet up with a character introduced at the very beginning of the film, played by Tom Waits. Uh, Tom Waits is in this yeah. movie, you guys. I mean, come um, on. And I, like, I'll... I'll I'm a huge Tom Waits fan. Totally. Uh, I love it when he shows I, up and stuff. I love him so much. Um, but I, I don't understand why they picked Tom Waits for this. He's, like, was he just someone's friend? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really get the impression, right? And I, I this will be confirmed here in a little bit. But I really get the impression that Kinka Usher just hired people that he knew and thought were cool. If for for some of these parts. Now, some of them, I'm sure, were, were decided at a much higher level or agreed upon. But for the cameos, for the smaller parts, where directors generally have a lot of like, ah, you know, just find a guy, you know, who cares kind of thing. I, I really feel like he stacked this movie with his friends. Um, maybe he knew that this would be his only movie. <laughs> maybe, when <it> was, <laughs> maybe when it was all going down, he's like, guys, I'm never getting another shot at this. Okay, this ain't happening. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, the Amelie guy after he made Alien Resurrection. <laughs> it's oh. like, we're done here. All right, I'm back to France. Peace. I'm going to go make weird French art films. You guys have it fun. It was nice to meet you all. Just kidding. Peace out. <laughs> yeah, we, we done here. And, you know, it's it's weird. But so 
they eventually reconcile, of course. And, and then everything sort of comes to the end and we are introduced to the city's gangs that are about to all be united by Frankenstein with again, Jeffrey Usher just chewing scenery. Like yeah. it's just great. He's got a little man bun with like a gold, uh, like a, a gold uh, holder around it. Like it's just so big and over the top. And as we know with Jeffrey Rush and, and his later performances of characters like Barbosa, he can absolutely sell it. Like he's legitimately mm-hmm. good. So we go around, we meet all these gangs. They're all these stereotypical comic book. I, uh, uh, in the history of comic books, gangs have just been anything and everything that was popular or people were afraid of at the moment, right? For a long period of comic book history, the bad guys were just greasers. Mm-hmm. You know, just kids in leather jackets, uh, which Watchmen makes a joke of with the guys with the top knots and leather mm-hmm. jackets and stuff like it was just, you know, it was just gangs. Yeah, if it wasn't if it wasn't just like a bad kid, it would be something racist. Yeah, it was a lot of racist stereotypes. <laughs> like that, that was comic books like secret <laughs> trick. Like it's either bad kids from the street or it's black people. Yeah, it's just so <laughs> racist comics. stereotype. <laughs> so this is just like nothing but cultural stereotypes. It's the disco boys, the frat boys, uh, a, a bunch of people that look like mid nineties rappers. They probably were. I didn't look at to see if there were any. Cameos. Uh, they were. Yeah. They were. They were a goody mob. It was goody mob. Okay. Yeah. So and then like some some cat ladies and then like <laughs> stereotypical uh, you know uh, Italian gangsters with the 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 white carnations in their lapels and everything <laughs> like it's it's just so it's crazy a it's a cartoon like we have reached cartoon levels here but i must point out that the leader of the frat boys in possibly his most perfect role ever because that is precisely who he is and what he is is none other than michael bay uh huh. Because um, Michael Bay used to act, not very much, but he did before he became big time, you know, action before star he director man. Michael Bay. <laughs> uh, and he makes a cameo appearance. He gets a speaking line of this. Michael Bay is being paid royalties for Mystery Men. <laughs> when, Thank goodness it's not very much. <laughs> when we watched Mystery Men in our, our streaming service of choice, whatever it was, Michael Bay got a couple of pennies. And. I just find that so hilarious because someday he's going to get a check in a couple of months and he's going to be like, mystery man, who watched mystery men? And I will just be somewhere in America and I will raise my hand. <laughs> or he's going to be like mystery men. Uh, what the fuck was, was that? that? <laughs> so I, I have no reason for why Michael Bay is in this. He, there is no connection that can be overtly made other than the fact that Kinga Usher as a commercial director worked on the got milk campaign. Mm hmm which very famously was like Michael Bay's campaign. Um, he, he made a lot of those got milk commercials. And so I'm, I'm thinking again, Kinka Usher, he's got his first directing gig here at this point. Bay had already, he'd done the rock. Like he, he emerged as like, I'm, I'm an up and comer director. Steven Spielberg thinks I'm good. He's patting me on the back saying, Hey, we're going to make transformers in a couple of years and you're just going to explode whatever. But I can only imagine that Kinka Usher just like knew him and was like, Michael, I'm making a movie. Do you want to come hang out for a day and we'll put you in here? We've got these crazy 
like Letterman sweaters <laughs> you yeah. can you can wear. And Michael Bay was like, frat boys, I understand them. I get them. Yes, I will be their leader because that's all he is. Even to this day, he is the leader of the frat boys. Mm-hmm. So bless you, Michael Bay. Bless you, Michael Wherever Bay. You may be even the Hey, <laughs> frat boys need movies, too. You know, yeah. they do. They need a movie that they can go, bro, at least five times. I mean, and Michael he's, Bay he's is partially guy. responsible for the bimboification of men. So I'm, uh, I'm OK with you're that. Not wrong. Himbos you're for not everyone. Wrong. <laughs> And so Frankenstein is, uh, is, is stirring up everybody and getting them to his side. And his, his whole point of this little party is to kill Captain Amazing in front of everybody to show them that, you know, they now are going to, to rule the streets. So the mystery men show up and, and they end up being the ones that kill Captain Amazing. And that, is, go ahead. That yeah. scene was funny. That scene was really funny. I feel like some of the dialogue went on a bit too long. Yes. But that entire sequence was great because you genuinely don't think they're going to kill him. No, no. <laughs> like it, it really comes out of left field, but it all stems back. It goes back to Captain Amazing being pretty short, kind of a jerk with people. And and so they're trying to work out how to get him out of it. And he knows how. And he's like, you just need to flip the switch. And they're like, this switch? He's like, just flip it. Just flip the switch. Flip it. And, and it's Janine Garofalo who's like, this one? I mean, do, should I flip this one? And he's like, just flip it. And he starts screaming at them and they flip it and it fries him. And, and we do get some very <laughs> bad, it's, very it's bad kind CG. Of, uh, it's a very gruesome scene. It's gross. Though. Yeah. Um, like, because he melts, basically. Like, he, he gets yeah. completely melted in this chair. I think it might be Azaria's best scene in here. He's got a couple of good ones, but... He's just standing in the corner with his hands over his mouth and just unable to speak. It's it's quite funny. Um, so amazing is dead, and and now the mystery men, you know, are going to have to stop Frankenstein all by themselves. <laughs> and so it's it's very silly and it's really unexpected. Like you think that this is going to become like Captain Amazing validating them right like he's going to recognize hey you guys can be heroes too and that that's where the movie's going to go and then literally on a dime it goes "Mm -mm, nope not that at all he's still a jerk because those guys aren't going to change and these people are still kind of losers but that doesn't mean they can't do something right they can't help uh, so they go back to Tom Waits and Tom Waits kind of sort of gears them up. There's a really good scene where William H. Macy has this extended metaphor about, is it, is it egg salad? Yes. Yeah. He's got, he's like making egg salad sandwiches. He's like literally cutting the celery behind them as everybody's talking. He's assembling it. And then he makes this great analogy about egg salad sandwich. And now it's, it might, it might go bad or something. I don't even remember, but it's, it's a good scene. Like it, it's so ludicrous that it just kind of works because he's like the mom. Right? He's like making the sandwiches for everybody so that everybody's got energy. <laughs> it's, just, it's great. Um, so our, our final conflict where the, the film is headed is, is, of course, a face off between Frankenstein and all of his his people versus the mystery men who now have their cool new costumes that they put together at the Sphinx's behest. Um, everybody looks a lot more legitimate 
as terms in terms of superhero-y, uh, the tank that Roy was supposed to break down at his junk job, uh, they're able to rescue, and their their Dr. Heller guy is able to to put it together and turn it into a legitimate like. Kind of looks like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles party bus, if we're being honest. But yeah, um, you know, it becomes their their team vehicle sort of thing. Because that, I mean, that's kind of a Scooby Doo thing. Yeah, you know, it's this, movie, this movie's all over the place at this it's point. So, it's so over the top. You know, the team needs their their team vehicle. They need their Batmobile. They need their, their whatever. I guess <laughs> their mystery their machine. mystery machine. And so they bust in, and and you know, the the final conflict begins. And I, I think my favorite part of this, and there are some really good parts of this is when Kel's character finally is able to to demonstrate his power. Uh, yes. He can go invisible as long mm-hmm. as no one is looking. And as long as he doesn't look at himself. As long as he doesn't look at himself. <laughs> but it totally works, and it was it's very rewarding, and it's another kind of unexpected thing, because so far, none of them have any powers, and all of that has been a joke and a lie, but... He actually does. The kid who wanted to be the hero the most is actually the real hero. Right. It's a ridiculous power, and it's it's very situationally specific, but it allows them to win here because there's some kind of like yeah. high-tech security system, and he's able to turn it off because he can go invisible. But then when everybody sees him, he's just, just naked, which gets a, a nice... It's a good joke. Uh, Gene Garofalo's got a nice reaction to that. Yeah, it's an, it's, it's an effective joke that aged really well like there are most of these scenes have not aged really well but some of the jokes and some of the setups they're still they're still good yeah i wish they were in a better movie like that's at the (laughs) end of the day that's that's really the thing is they just needed to be in a better film um and then we get a lot of we get a lot of scenes shot by a guy who doesn't really know how to shoot action scenes and that is super obvious kinka usher doesn't does not know how to shoot action um like the the hero shot of these guys as they walk into frankenstein's lair or whatever is all all of them standing on a stair sort of half crouching and and looking forward into the camera it's it's just it's very it's very not great um yeah but the so they they have to take the gangs out right so the first gang the the cat lady i don't even know the uh the guy gave them uh the the weapons guy gave them a gun that shrinks your clothes yeah so they shoot them at the ladies and their clothes go so tight that they can't stand up and then we get a couple of and and i do kind of have to criticize the the writing a little bit here because the movie had previously been pretty good about avoiding those kind of you know sexist jokes not and not that i i mind those things in a movie no I and mean, it's funny like i still laugh at stupid shit in austin powers with well, and that's, like all of the sexist jokes in there that is immediately if, what i thought of this that felt yeah. like a leftover austin powers joke yeah it like just it really it didn't did. feel like it fit in this movie i felt i felt like some of the other like previously kind of sexist jokes like the period girl mm-hmm that worked in this movie that that humor even though it was still a little like really it worked but the the shrinking clothes uh, i don't know i it would have been funnier if they had fired it at some guy's pants 
Sure, or at least then his had that shrink. scene as well. I mean, like, that's... Yeah, like, balance it out a little bit. Right. You know, don't just play it for this one kind of shallow joke. Exactly. And so they do get to, you know, have some cool powers. There's a thing on the van that can, like, it sucks all the bad guys' guns up so they can't use them. And then they're at mm-hmm. the end, they're just all standing around the magnet trying to just angle their guns so that they can shoot at them because they can't <laughs> do anything else. Um, so they're being, they they mine it for some good humor. It's it's funny. It's it's fairly well executed. Uh, the Blue Raja gets his moment. Basically, everybody gets their moment, and that's that's it's something we kind of come to expect from superhero movies now. And now that they're that superhero movies are so overblown and just like long. I mean, like. Of course, everybody in Avengers Endgame gets their moment. It's three hours long. Mm. How could they not? Right? Like, if you can't work a moment in for every single one of your characters in a three-hour movie, I don't know what you're doing. We need to trim the fat. (laughs) And so it's... This movie does a pretty decent job of giving everybody their little hero moment. Um you know, Blue Raja throws the forks. So they, uh, Casanova, Frankenstein, they had figured out that Roy was interested in the waitress, so they kidnap her in somehow in, in the intervening moments. And and he's going to kill her, and so Roy has to climb up the forks. He throws the forks into the wall, and he climbs up the forks. It's very silly, but whatever. Uh, and so Roy finally gets his his moment, and they save him for last, which again, I think one of the weaknesses of this film is the fact that they turn Roy into the the central hero when he yeah. nothing in the story really indicates that he should be. Um, but we all right. One of the okay. This this is a, this is a weird. <laughs> this movie's this is a, got a lot of moments like that. <laughs> this is a real weird movie, right? We've established that. Yeah. We've talked about it extensively, but this is. This movie is perhaps best expressed in that there is a shot. Uh, they, Casanova Frankenstein has a lot of fingernails and he has one fingernail. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a Coke nail, right? Like that's obviously nail, what yeah. it is. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, painted gold, whatever. But he uses it like a weapon. And so he like comes at Roy with his finger out and he's going to scratch him with his, his nail. That's his move. And and Kink Usher, in his attempt to indicate what this should look like, obviously built like a larger than life size finger and then mounted it to the front of the camera and then just ran with it at Ben Stiller's face. <laughs> yeah. And and it's like a point of view shot. They've got the finger on there. It's it's one of the most ridiculous shots I've ever seen in a film. And and unnecessary. Completely. It it takes you out of the moment. Like why why why? Because it's obviously oversized. Like they wanted to pervert preserve scale. So I mean that means somebody had to sit down and measure Jeffrey Rush's finger, probably <laughs> take a cast of it, and then say okay, well if we're gonna put it on the camera in this position, it's gonna need to be you know two point three times larger than actual size. And then they had to blow that up and build it and paint it and then figure out a mounting attachment for it. Like, it's just 
It's, well, I mean, I think I know where the sixty-eight million dollars went. That's where the sixty-eight million dollars went. Two million dollars was giant for that one fingers. shot of the finger flying at Roy's face. It's it's just ludicrous. I I can't even say how ridiculous it is. And again, it, it feels kind of like Sam Raimi, right? Something that the low budget you know kid from Michigan might do. But he would have just cut someone's finger off and put it to the, on the front of the camera. Like Sam Raimi was not gonna spend that much effort no no there are faster cheaper better ways to get stuff like it that would have done. been easier to get a finger right yeah <laughs> like just to hit up a hospital be like do you have any extra fingers <laughs> i just really need one for my horror movie so i'm making a lot of assumptions about uh, sam Raimi. Oh, I'm, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry we're sorry sam Raimi. we love you <laughs> you wouldn't so cut excited. off anyone's finger i'm just kidding i'm glad you're making more movies <laughs> And so Roy gets his moment and he's able to defeat Casanova Frankenstein by tossing him down into the same machine that killed uh, Captain Amazing. And he dies. He, he powers up with his rage. Um, and then finally, it is Janine Garofalo's moment. And she uses her father's head to. Where does she throw it at? I'm trying to remember. I watched this last week. She like puts the bowling ball into the machine. Yeah, she puts it into the she she puts the bowling ball into the light beams. Yeah, and, that's and right. Then Carmine the bowler destroys the machine so that it doesn't so that it doesn't destroy, destroy the, city. the city. That's right. So yeah, the bowling ball like you know destroys it and and blows it up because it's a magic bowling ball and and Jeannie Garofalo gets like a nice moment where she you know tells her dad how much she loves him and and stuff and it's 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 good I I really liked afterward when she gets the bowling ball she was like all right now I'm going to grad school yeah (laughs) (laughs) like that was funny I did the revenge now I'm going to grad school dad this is it (laughs) yeah it's I saw a joke the other day that was something like that it was like Oh, at the end of the original of Street Fighter Two, somebody memed uh, Chun Li's original Street Fighter Two ending, and like it's you know it was the whole like two screens to show you what happened to the character, and it was uh, now that I finally avenged my father's death, and then it cuts to the next screen and she's like let her hair down. She's like I can be free and single again. And it's like it's <laughs> ridiculous, but it's very much the same sentiment here. Is like all right, I did do what you wanted. It. Revenge is complete. Now I'm just going to grad school. <laughs> um, you know, and then the the film ends as so many of these early superhero movies did, where the team gets named, the movie gets name dropped, right? Like they're being introduced, they're saying, "What's your name? What's your name?" And they don't have one because they never agreed to what it would be. And then the the you know the uh, individual the the reporter is like who we'll never know who these mystery men will be you know and and everybody gets their cathartic moment you know blue raj's mom watching uh shoveler's wife and kids watching seeing all their you know their success as they defeated frankenstein and now they're legitimate heroes uh it's it's a sweet ending it's it's very pat it's very typical um but it's it's nice you know but then we get the ding 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 you know, the mystery men, and that's it. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, this is not a big movie. It's it's not bombastic. It's it's pretty small. Uh, it's a small movie desperately trying to be big. And 
I think it would have worked much better if it just stayed small. <laughs> like it just didn't need scale for it yeah. to be good. But Macy does get a nice speech at the end, and and there's some some good stuff. Did you have any anything about the ending that you wanted to uh, indicate? Um, it's it just sort of ends. I mean, yes. it has the the same news crew that was interviewing Captain Amazing, and yep. you know, kind of the same beats there and it was a it was a good ending but i i'm left somewhat confused by this movie <laughs> i'm not sure how how i feel about about a good happy super happy ending because i don't think that was the original ending was it yeah i mean so all-star does come back over the end credits so i guess we we have to admit that and and gets its its full treatment because now they are all-stars or are they really um because doesn't sphinx gets the joke where he's like we're the super squad and everyone's like no you know it's it's just it's it's very goofy it was a Uh, very very cute ending it kind of feels like a reshot ending just a little bit it 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 actually Um, was the 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 original ending was really really unpopular with the test audiences okay see i didn't i didn't look anything up about it but this more i mean i there are definite reshoots in this movie but this more than anything feels like a reshoot like it was so twee and cute that i i had to know more i was like how why did this wrap up like that like i I felt like it should have gone out on a kind of self-deprecating note Mm -hmm. and it didn't instead it it took its original sarcastic Smash Mouth All Star and made it a sort of attempt. A, yeah, still not genuine. I still don't feel like anyone uses that song genuinely. But right. it was it was just cute. Like that's the word I keep coming back to. It's like, aw, <laughs> you did <laughs> but it. Why? <laughs> why did it do that? <laughs> yeah, I. Obviously, superhero and and genre pictures like this are where a lot of directors who come from other places and and other types of filmmaking cut their teeth because these genre films, they they get made quickly. They generally have a decent budget. So, you know, there's a razor thin budget. You you don't want an inexperienced director because they're going to waste it. Right. You get Star Wars where George Lucas comes back at the end of the project says, hey, I need like two and a half more million dollars because George Lucas had no idea what he was doing. Um, you know, but, but these genre pictures, they got a little bit of budget. There's some flex there. So I totally get why you would go after somebody that had impressed with, you know, various commercials and apparently Usher's commercials were very impressive at the time, but this is, this feels like something worse than a student film in so many ways. And I, I really, I'm kind of with you. If you had this cast telling this kind of story and this movie came out two years ago, this, Holy this would have shit. been a fun. I mean, maybe not a phenomenon, right? Cause there would have been I think a large number been, of people who were like, look how at dare guardians you of the lampoon galaxy. my superhero movies. You know? Look at guardians of the galaxy and how hard that movie mm-hmm. lampoons superheroes. Yeah. And people ate that up like it was candy. Yes. If you, I'm, and I'm, I shit you not, if you put this up for a remake and said James Gunn will direct this, or, God, even someone like Zack Snyder, why the fuck not? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> put put any of those big-name comic book directors at the helm, and this would be huge. Yeah. People would love this. You could even hire the same actors at their present ages. I would be 100% okay with that. I actually yeah. think if they... I. 
just make mystery men too with all of the actors who are in this and just have them be older yeah just do it and james gunn directed i i you would have a smash success on your hands yeah i i would be so excited bring smash mouth back have him write a new song fuck yeah maybe maybe you know You've just described my favorite movie. Maybe Falling Star. It doesn't exist. All Star, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, like this, in concept, this is great. Because the indie comics that this was based on were legitimately funny. And really, really subversive and surrealist and interesting. You know, that's that's why those independent comics were able to survive in a market that was openly hostile towards them. Right. Like this was not when in when, you know, big publishers were like, oh, indie comics are cute, man. We love them. It was like, no, we want to we want to grind you into dust. Right. We can't have you competing for space on our shelves. Right. We need three more issues of Blue Beetle and you're you don't have space, Dave Keen. Like we just go away. And and it's. It's it's a testament to how desperate the superhero genre is for lampooning like it needs it it has to have it because marvel again as i've said has has done a really good job of they laugh at themselves when it's appropriate they poke fun at Mm -hmm. things when it's appropriate but for the most part marvel stuff is serious as a heart attack like well and 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 the fun poking is not like dc serious but you know yeah but the fun poking is a result of the disney merger 100 percent. yeah disney is so self-aware that they push for that. Because if you look at the pre-Disney Marvel films, the pre-MCU stuff, that's not there at all. No. No, not at all. Like the Avi Arad, you know, years of Marvel are... There's, there's Those no... Those movies were serious. <laughs> so serious. I mean... <laughs> they were hilarious, and that is but so, they were serious. <laughs> it is really hard to say that Ghost Rider and Daredevil are serious films, but at some point somebody thought they were. Um, I mean... Colin Farrell running around as bullseye with a a bullseye carved into his are you serious how is that oh my god anyway and you know if those movies can exist if that happened and people took it as seriously as they did then I think mystery man deserves a fair shake yeah totally <laughs> I think it's like you know why not mystery man's not that bad no and it's and it's not I know we've bagged on this film a lot. I, I, I do understand that. And it certainly deserves it. It's not a great film. It isn't. But it's it's pretty fun. Again, the cast is insane. Like the the people that they got all into this movie again were either like on the verge of becoming massive, massive superstars, or had already sort of established themselves and I mean, how do you get these people involved? Um, it's it's just kind of nuts that this little this little dark horse comic book movie got that kind of attention and and this many people into it and it's it holds up decently well again it's it's production designed out the butt probably to its detriment but it is certainly distinctive and God, there's kind of nothing else like it in the superhero market. Like no, for, nobody else has tried to do this for good or for good or for ill. Like. <laughs> I think I think for me this movie is a wonderful exploration of how we arrived at present day comic book movies. Mm-hmm. Um, because this movie, whether whether it was 
a direct influence or it was just, you know, a background influence, it's still it's still adding to what we now consider the the multi-billion dollar, you know, military industrial complex that is comic book movies. Mm-hmm. Um this movie was definitely part of that. And I think that I don't I don't know if I recommend it because it's a good movie or if it's like if you're if you care about comic book movies and if you care about where we're at with them, you know, this is this is representing sort of a different side and a different a different era of comic books because the independent comic is not what it was anymore. And I think this movie has it takes a little bit of maybe uh not research, but a little bit of knowledge into, you know, the independent comic scene and how some of those things ended up being these weird little movies. Um, but I, I think, I, I still think it's kind of important to watch it at least. Yeah. This, this feels of a piece with this, you know, we've already talked about the early days of superhero genre films and, and, you know, sort of everybody was trying to figure out how to make them work. Burton had found some success again, success that didn't really make a ton of sense. Um, but it had found some success. So people were trying to replicate that. Everybody's trying to get a piece of that pie. They're gobbling up, um, um, properties as fast as they can, right? Everybody's just like, I'm going to buy this and I'm going to buy this and I'm going to buy this just to have it just in case something blows up. And one movie that we can't forget about is Spawn uh, would have come out in like 96 or 97, I think. And and so that had given some legitimacy to independent comics being adapted for film. Um, not that it was good, but it, it was relatively successful like it was middlingly successful and and of course todd mcfarlane took middling success and turned it into you know extreme success because everything that he does is gold according to him and it i I think maybe that legitimized why this film got made is somebody said hey independent comics are hot let's let's get what we can And, and mystery men got you know sort of thrown in there um and I, I think it really does feel like a part of that conversation as yeah. as we're attempting to figure out what a good superhero movie looks like, because this is pushing back against the superhero movies that were trying to kick off the trend and saying, like, no, that's dumb. Right. Like, yeah. we're smarter than this now. Stop doing this stuff. Um, you know, and I, I think Guardians of the Galaxy tried to do that a little bit, too. Mm-hmm but in a slightly more washed and corporate fashion. Yes. Yeah. It's only going to push so far because it still wants you to love it. Right. It's not. Yeah. Whereas this movie it still wants to make money. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure this movie wants you to love it. Like, I don't think yeah. it cares. And, and if it does care, it's certainly not working very hard to make it happen. So it's, it's kind of this interesting, you know, again, it feels a bit counterculture. It feels a bit punk, uh, just like the comics that inspired it, which is a good thing. And and I think it's it's just a really interesting historical document of superhero films as they came to be and growing pains. Yeah, definitely growing pains. And I think we need another one of these. Right. We need somebody pushing back. Um, I guess, you know, you've got some stuff like The Boys, which is attempting to do it, you know, but not 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 in a funny way right not and not big enough and not bombastic enough no no because it's still treating the superhero stuff very lightly um and very seriously 
Whereas this, you know, I mean, all of the major characters have dumb abilities, like they're stupid and they shouldn't work. Everybody freeze level of stupidity. Like I, and I kind of love that. I love it's comic books. I, (laughs) I love that, that a movie can have been this silly and this shameless. And I, I wish that comic book movies were less up themselves now and could maybe return to the mostly untapped well of independent comics from the 80s and 90s and adapt some of those stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, old comics can still be relevant. I mean, obviously, we have things like The Watchmen being made, and everybody loved that. And that was a super serious, similar thing of, of making fun of what it would be like to have superheroes in the real world. So I think if we can make movies like that, we should try making something like Mystery Men again. We should look at some of those those weirder comics, like Scud. That would be cool. Oh, you got a video he game. You got a video game. Make a Scud movie. He had a, a very short-lived animated series. He did. Yeah. He did. He had that cartoon. But that would be fantastic. I would love to see something like that. Or, God, Lethargic Lad. I brought that up earlier. Mm-hmm. Bring that back. Yeah, that would be really funny. There's room in comics for the movies that make fun of comics. Um, or there, Now there's, more than ever. And, and, well, there's room in movies for the comics that make fun of comics. Like, and, and we need some of that. And, you know, whether it's Netflix and, and just that content mill producing something along those lines, um, there's there's got to be a space for it. Because sometimes we just need that reset and somebody looking at it from a different perspective and saying, no, it's this. Um, I feel like in horror, we got a little bit of that last year. Um, have you seen Psycho Goreman? No. Um, try and find it if you can. It's, it's, it's very, it's a, it's a mashup between hardcore horror, like, you know, 80s style practical effects horror with like 80s Goonies style kids films, which shouldn't work. But it's yeah. it's done so well that in being exceedingly goofy and strange, it kind of effectively functions as a great sort of palate cleanser for a horror film. And I, I don't know, I really enjoyed it, but I think this can occupy a similar space. But um, needless to say, let's let's move into our recommendations. But uh, this is a pretty hard recommend for me. Um, this is this is pretty high on 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 my scale. Like I enjoy Mystery Men. It is problematic. I don't think it's a great watch, top to bottom. But this is still about a ninety percent for me. I I really like it. And again, the cast is exceptional, um, and they're having a good time at the very least. Like this may have been a troubled shoot. Seems like it probably was. But the people who are working here are doing good work. Nobody's phoning it in. Uh, maybe Tom Waits, but Tom Waits always phones it in. <laughs> no, no, you don't, Tom Waits. I love you. Anyway, <laughs> that's not fair. Um, He's going to appear behind he you. Will, he will. He will. He'll he'll write a song. You'll hear that raspy, right. scary voice, and then that'll be the last thing you hear. He'll write a song <laughs> directly behind me first, and then he'll kill me, <laughs> and and that'll be the end of me. But no, it's. Uh, it's it's really fun. It's a fun movie. It could be more fun. Like I said, it's it's not as fun as it probably should be, but it's it's solid enough it is, that I think it's. It really is not a restrained time. movie. No, it is not restrained. No, and it is not subtle, and you have to prepare yourself 
for for like an Austin Powers level comedy in some ways. Yeah. Because I think that was just the 90s. I think that was just what we did. Yeah, everybody was just trying to outdo everybody else. I mean, that was really the name of the game. So like it wasn't necessarily about being good. It was just about being different, being memorable and bigger. And bigger. You know, that was really what it was all about. Now, I did want to say one more thing that this movie was probably doomed to fail from the start as this came out August 6th. And if you remember as well as I do, the movie that came out the week before this movie was Blair Witch Project. And it beat the living hell out of everything at the box office. And and for good reason, you know, like this movie was doomed I mean, it was being released in August, which is never good. August and September are the dumping grounds for studio pictures that cost too much money. But Blair Witch was all anybody was talking about. You weren't going to penetrate the Blair Witch hype at any point. And, you know, so I I wonder if this movie hadn't been released at a different time or maybe held a little bit longer. uh, If perhaps maybe it wouldn't have found, you know, a bigger audience at the time. It's hard to say, but... Uh, but yeah, this is a, one of the many films that was absolutely beaten in the basement corner to death by uh, by Blair Witch, because uh, Blair Witch came out and pretty much it's all anybody saw in the theater until October. So, And that's just, that's, I mean, that's sort of what I hope is what we're doing with, with our, our little podcast is talking about movies that, you know, they may not be perfect and they may have also been completely sidelined because of a bigger release and that's not always fair i think this movie probably would have done better if it hadn't been for that yeah i mean it's it's hard to it's hard to know i mean again this is a very strange film and superhero movies were not as saturated as um in the public consciousness at this time they certainly were a thing i mean no doubt but um it's uh, it just I don't know if it would have found an audience then either. And it is there are technical issues with this film that are undeniable. Like it is yes. shot badly in a ton <laughs> of ways. Um, and, and it's it's very difficult to, to not acknowledge how sort of technically incompetent a bunch of this movie is. Yeah. This was clearly made by a person who's never made a movie. Yeah, it was just, you know, really just really not great. Um, and, and and that's okay. That's not bad. It's it's fine. But yeah, you know, it, it, it needed it needed some more time, I think. A little time uh, in the oven. A little bit more time in the oven to, to make it work. To finish. But, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's something, I, I said. So so what's your, your recommendation and your, your score? Um I'm I'm gonna give this movie like a seventy because I'm I'm giving it a seventy because it's got heart. <laughs> it's it does have think, heart. It's got real feelings. I think I think that this movie could have been something really special. It's it's based on something pretty special. because um, I I don't know. I, I liked the idea behind it. I like the spirit of the film, but I can't. I can't give it any higher than that because it's not well made. It's not. Yeah. And that's fair. 
it's a it's a movie that parts of it I am I'm embarrassed to like it as much as I do in some parts where it's like oh I probably shouldn't enjoy this as much as I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I but I do recommend it. I think I, I recommend it because if you have Peacock, which isn't it streaming on Peacock? It is. Yes, it is on Peacock, and it is on the free version of Peacock. You don't have to be on a paid tier, and you can watch the entirety of Mystery Men with five commercial breaks. You just check it out. If you're if you're bored and you you have a lot of other things, and you can put a movie on in the background, this is pretty this is pretty good. amusing. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't ask anyone to dedicate their precious attention to it, though. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a hard ask. That's a difficult one. Uh, but no, this <laughs> definitely is, look out for that Michael Bay. If cameo, you can, though. yeah, oh, definitely. Like it's it's obvious. Um, there. I will say just on another technical point, uh, we watched this on Netflix. It just went off Netflix on like the, at the end of April and we watched it on Netflix and the transfer on Netflix was awful. Like it looked terrible. Uh, I mean, it was fine, but on like a decently sized TV, it was not good. Uh, the one on Peacock mm. is way better. Uh, it's a much better transfer um, in, in terms of its streaming quality. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. So when I rewatched it on Peacock, I was like, whoa, this doesn't look like absolute trash. I mean, it still looks like kind of trash, but it's not like all fuzzy and gross. Like it, it was actually decent. So I don't know if maybe NBC universal just had a better cut of it, but that's not the one that they licensed out to Netflix or what, but anyway, it's Netflix it, has been ripping us off this whole time. Hey man, you know, they're doing it. No, no question about that. Just take my money. Um, yeah, I did look up just real quick. The Blair, Witch uh, projects weekly averages. So it went into, it was in small release, uh, like fewer than 30 theaters for the first three weeks of release in its pre-release period. And it was making $125,000 per day per theater and being open in 30 theaters. Like, that's insane. That is insane. Weekend of wide release, it pulls in $49 million. $49 million. Wow. And it stays at the, even then it's only open at number two, but it stayed at number, it stayed in the top 10 until mid-September, six weeks later. That's crazy. That's crazy. And it didn't leave theaters officially until November 4th. Like that is nuts, dude. Kids in the woods. Just demolished everything. The only thing that beat it was freaking Runaway Bride. (laughs) <laughs> that Julia Roberts Richard Gere joint because everybody you know what? loved that. Nobody's talking about that no, movie anymore. anymore. We're still talking about the Blair Witch. Yeah, still talking about the Blair Witch. Anyway, anyway, I don't want listeners. If you have not seen the Blair Witch Project, <laughs> it is highly recommended. We need to just do a Blair Witch series. <laughs> Blair down. Witch super super, super series. <laughs> Because the first one's the good one, and then everyone since then has been like, <laughs> although the video game is good. The video game that a Bluebird the video game is good. made yeah. is, is solid. There's parts of it that are kind of kind of crap, but the game in general is pretty good. Bluebird is good. Um, but all of the old terminal reality games, not good. Ugh, Very bad. Those were bad. Yeah, real those bad. bad. Anywho, all right. Well, it's a recommend on Mystery Men from us. It's a good little flick. Great cast. Interesting. 
You'll execution. never see another movie like no, it. <laughs> no, definitely not now. There's no way anybody would ever give $70 million to make this again. <laughs> it wouldn't happen. Uh, but it's a lovely little takedown of the superhero genre that's having a, a great deal of fun. Probably more fun than it deserves to have. Uh, but it's it's really solid. So if you've never checked it out, uh, head on over to Peacock. Sign up for a free account. We're not getting in, any kind of endorsement or, or pay for, for signing up for Peacock. So don't Although, worry about that. Peacock, call, call us. us and we will. It's fine. <laughs> NBC, I love you. <laughs> uh, but go check it out. It's, it's certainly worth your time. Uh, all right. So where can you be found on social media if somebody wants to yell at us about our opinions about Mystery Men? Um, I await conversations about mystery men i can be found at baskinator on twitter and of course i can be found at t baskin and you can certainly come and yell at me there about mystery men because there's certainly things to that uh, you can definitely yell at me about if you need to get us together we're at fpeace theater on twitter and of course failurepeace at gmail.com if you want to send us an email uh thanks for listening and we will be back with another disaster from cinema history next week Bye-bye.